Imagine that um, you're sitting down with your doctor to review the results of the most thorough medical exam that you have ever endured. Every imaginable fluid has been extracted from your body uh, to be lab tested. You've taken the treadmill stress test, vision test, hearing test. There's a stack of images there uh, from x-rays, ultrasounds, MRIs, PET scans and CAT scans. I mean, you did it all because you want to know the truth about your health. And as the doctor goes over page after page of test results, it's nothing but good news. Clear scans, normal ranges, healthy ratios, until you get to the last page, your comprehensive metabolic panel. And the first thing you notice uh, from where you're sitting is that there's one number on that page that's printed in red. Uh, Everything else is in black. It's normal, but there's that one higher than normal number. And then the doctor tells you why he saved that page for last. He says, unfortunately, this is the most important marker of all. If this number was within normal range, I would give you a clean bill of health. But because it is elevated, I cannot in all honesty tell you that you are healthy. If you want to pass this test with flying colors next year, you're going to have to get this number down. Now, I have no idea if there's any one indicator that a doctor could point to as the most accurate measure of our physical health. But I can tell you the most accurate marker of our spiritual health. Actually, James identifies it for us twice in this letter, first negatively and then positively. Look first at verse 26 of James 1, James 1, 26. He says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Now this may surprise you, but the word religion is actually rarely used in the Bible. Just a few times. And what it refers to is uh, the performance of all those different rituals and disciplines that we associate with church life. I mean, you may have a list in your mind of all the kinds of things that good Christians do, like getting baptized and reading the Bible and and praying and attending church and taking communion and making donations and volunteering. And you may feel pretty good about yourself if you do those things, but James says that if you get a passing grade in all of those practices, but you fail when it comes to controlling your speech, You may be religious, but you're not righteous. Conversely, chapter 3, verse 2, says, We all stumble in many ways, but anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. Which in this context doesn't mean sinless, but rather mature. It's the same word that James used back in chapter 1 when he said, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 
See, there is no other part of your body that is more resistant to sanctification than your mouth is. If you can win the battle there, odds are you can win it in every other area of your life. So what's the most revealing test of our spiritual maturity? It's the tongue test. Specifically, it is the ability to refrain from saying that which is sinful. But why is that so important? What is it about our tongue that makes it the decisive battleground between flesh and spirit? Well, uh, James is going to tell us that it has disproportionate power. It has disproportionate power. Uh, if you look down at verse 5 of chapter 3, you will see it. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. It sounds like James is saying that the tongue is a braggart, that it claims to be more important than it really is. But I think what he's actually saying is that the tongue really does have way more influence than you would ever guess based on its inconspicuous size. He uses three different analogies to emphasize that point. First, the analogy of a bit. That word is used in different contexts, always to describe something tiny. But James uses it here to refer to the metal hardware that goes in the mouth of a horse and connects to a bridle and ultimately to the reins. Verse 3, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Google tells me that the horse, on average, weighs about 1,000 pounds, less if it's a miniature horse, more if it's a Clydesdale. A, a bit weighs, on average, about one pound, one-tenth of one percent of the horse's weight. And yet that tiny metal bar steers the whole animal. Similarly, there is no better predictor or determiner of what we are going to do and where we are going to go than what we say. And, and second, you, uh, James uses the analogy of a rudder. See it in verse 4? Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Regardless of the size of a boat or a ship, the rudder typically has uh, an average area that's about 1% of the total area of the hull. So here's a drawing of a schooner from the Maine Maritime Museum. See that little red area on the back? That's the rudder. It has the same ability to steer the course of a ship as your tongue has to steer the course of your life. And third, James uses the analogy of a spark. In the middle of verse 5, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. In 2018, the largest wildfire in California history burned more than 400,000 acres and destroyed 280 structures and resulted in one firefighter death and three firefighter injuries. Guess how the fire started? A spark that came from a hammer driving a metal stake into the ground 
ignited the dry grass, and off it went. Just as a single word can unleash terrible destruction. Do you hear what James is saying? He is saying that there is no more powerful instrument for doing both good and evil than our tongue. He's saying that there is no more momentous spiritual battle than the one that produces the words that come out of our mouth. And so there's no more important spiritual discipline than the taming of our tongue, which is a problem because it's not a fair fight. Remember two weeks ago we talked about that residue of rebellion that remains in us even after we resolve to follow Jesus faithfully. Alexander Solzhenitsyn calls it a small corner of evil. Well, if you're looking for its location, for its headquarters, if you will, look no further. It's the tongue. Verse 6, the tongue also is a fire a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. That's not subtle. Like James is ever subtle, right? Two weeks ago, we talked about how the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's what 1 John 5 says. The devil controls the world. Well, the same word is used here in verse 6. The tongue is its own little world, a a, a world of evil, James says, set on fire by hell. How sobering that the tongue, even the Christian tongue, can be demonically influenced. And if that's not enough bad news, here's more. It's humanly uncontrollable. You see that in verse 7? All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. See that word tamed in verse 7? It's only used one other time in the Bible, in Mark 5, which tells the story of the man that Jesus encountered who lived in a graveyard and was possessed by a legion of demons. That passage says that no one could bind him, not even with chains and leg irons. It says no one was strong enough to subdue him. That's the word that James uses here. No human being can subdue the tongue. There's a cemetery in rural Massachusetts where a woman by the name of Arabella Young is buried and etched on her gravestone is this little poem. Here lies as silent clay Miss Arabella Young, who on the 21st of May, 1771, first began to hold her tongue. I'm sure there were reasons why her family gave her that epitaph. But the fact is, we're all Arabella Young. As long as we live, our tongue will be restlessly evil and humanly uncontrollable. So why even try to tame it? Well, first we should do so because James said that it's the ultimate mark of spiritual maturity. I mean, we know that we're never going to achieve Christ's likeness in this life 
But that doesn't mean that we don't try, right? And if Christ's likeness is measured in large part by what comes out of our mouth, then this is one aspect of our lives that deserves special attention. And if becoming like Jesus isn't motivating enough for us, here's another good reason to work hard at taming our tongue. To avoid judgment. James is not shy about reminding us that we will all stand before God one day to be evaluated and recompensed for the words we have spoken. He mentions it in chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And in chapter 4, verse 12, he tells us not to judge one another because there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. And in chapter 5, verse 12, he says that if we have to resort to oaths to pledge honesty, if a simple yes or no cannot be trusted, we will be condemned. Another judgment word. Where did James get this idea that our words are going to be judged by God? We got it from Jesus, who said in Matthew 12, everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So this is not an elective in God's curriculum. If we want to become like Jesus, and if we want to see a smile on His face on our day of judgment, we have to take on the huge challenge of taming our tongue. Okay, but what does that mean specifically? Well, James gets right down to the nitty-gritty in this book. He gives us five practical pieces of advice. I want to say right up front, this is not a comprehensive strategy. One thing that's striking to me is that almost all of James' advice is about what we shouldn't say rather than what we should say. There are other important scriptures that emphasize the importance of speaking the right words at the right time. But James doesn't go there because his focus is on the tongue's tendency to say the wrong things at the wrong time. So this is going to lean more toward the thou shalt nots than the thou shalts. First and most importantly, James advises us to simply speak less. Go back and look at chapter 1, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, so James is talking about more than our speech in those two verses. He also addresses the sin of unrighteous anger, which often uses the instrument of the tongue to unleash destruction. But whatever it is that might tempt us to speak rashly must be restrained. The Living Bible says, listen much, speak little. The message says, lead with your ears, follow up with your tongue. Why? Well, because if we just speak without self-restraint, 
if when it comes to our mouth we've got only an accelerator and no brakes, then we're going to say evil things. Proverbs 10.19 in the Good News Translation says, the more you talk, the more likely you are to sin. I've told some of you before about an elders meeting that I was in at a church many years ago where one of the guys in the room said something that enraged me and uh, another pastor was sitting next to me and he could see my face getting red and so he leaned over and he whispered to me, count to one million, slowly. (laughs) I made it to two and then I exploded and what came out of my mouth was not righteous. President Calvin Coolidge said, I have never been hurt by anything I didn't say. Apparently, he he was known as a man of few words. Once he was at a dinner party where a woman walked up to him and told him that she had bet another woman that she could make the president say at least three words. He smiled and said, you lose. (laughs) If you only remember two words from this message, let them be these. Speak less. That's James' best advice to those who want to become spiritually mature. And here's his second tip, which frankly terrifies me. Teach cautiously. Chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Wow. What does that mean? One scholar wrote in his commentary, the precise meaning of judgment here is difficult. Does it mean that they are to be judged by a higher standard, or does it mean that they will be punished more severely? I read that, and all I could think was, both sound bad. I I don't want to be held to a higher standard or punished more severely. Why did James give us this warning? Is it because teaching is a ministry which happens to require the use of the most sin-prone part of your body? Well, yes, that must be part of it. And then there's also the fact that we're responsible to be doers of the Word, that is to put whatever spiritual truth that we learn into practice. And um, since teachers tend to study the scriptures more than most, they have more spiritual knowledge that they are responsible to apply to their lives. And woe to us if we teach one thing with our tongue, but something else with our life. God hates hypocrisy. And then there's the fact that what teachers say impacts the the behavior of others. If someone asked me, what part of the body of Christ are you? I would probably have to say, well, I'm, I'm the tongue. See, if I mislead you, I am responsible for whatever mistakes you make based on the error I taught. That's very heavy. With a warning like this, it astounds me that anyone would ever aspire to be a teacher in the church. I mean, what was I thinking? Uh, I do remember what compelled me to become a pastor. I 
knew that I had a spiritual gift of teaching and that I was responsible to fan that gift into flame. That was one part of it. And also, I just really cared about helping other people find and follow Jesus. I wanted other people to end up in heaven instead of hell. I wanted people to be able to, you know, understand what the Bible means and put it into practice so that their lives are better. That's why I agreed to do it. But I was scared to take on the responsibility of standing in front of people and telling them what the Bible means and what they're supposed to do about it. I mean, who am I to tell you how to live? Don't say amen. I remember vividly a sermon that I preached when I was a 25-year-old intern because when the Sunday morning deadline came, I still wasn't sure what the passage was teaching. And I didn't want to pretend to know. But I had never heard a pastor say, what does this mean? Beats me. No, people expect the pastor to know. I, I, I've, watched, I've watched this. I, I, I've, I've observed that people love pastors that know everything about everything. They're, they never say, I don't know. Everything's always black and white. It's crystal clear. This is what it means. This is what you're supposed to do. People love that because they don't want to live with confusion. But anybody who thinks that they know everything about everything the Bible says is self-deceived. It's not that easy. And I just had to be okay with telling you what I think God's Word is saying without faking certainty. That's why sometimes you'll hear me say, beats me. It was either that or get out of the ministry. Something else that you may or may not know about me is that I write out every sermon that I preach. I have a manuscript in front of me right now. If my iPad goes black, I have a printed copy as a backup. Um, I know that extemporaneous preachers are more entertaining. I'm more entertained by them. I like it when I see a guy walking around and just there it just flows out of his mouth. He's not, you know, it's almost like, almost like it's just being downloaded to him by the Holy Spirit on the spot. And maybe it is for them. There is that passage where Jesus says that we don't have to prepare in advance what we will say because the Holy Spirit will give us those, the words that we need at that moment. But I don't want to take that out of context. There's a context to that passage. And it's not the pulpit. And so I do not want to use a passage like that to be careless about what I say. And I don't make light of the fact that God expects me to practice what I preach. I'm speaking in total honesty when I say that the first person that I preach to every Sunday is to myself. Hey, by the way, we need more pastors. Anybody, anybody want to volunteer? Uh, the third admonition that James gives us regarding our tongue is to suppress slander. Write that down and then look at what James wrote in chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth 
come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. When there is incongruity between the words with which we worship God and the words with which we speak of others, that's, that's hypocrisy. Even if we say what both the Lord and the knucklehead deserve to hear. The true condition of our heart is not revealed by our most pious words, but by our most poisonous words. Over in chapter 4, verse 11, James says it again. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. That is, do not speak accusing or malicious words about one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. You've got to slow down there and try to understand what he's saying. The law of God, in a nutshell, is to love your neighbor as yourself. If instead of loving them, you curse them or slander them or judge them, you are also judging God's law. You are taking it upon yourself to decide when the word of God does and does not apply. And James says, when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? I heard a story about a man who confessed to his spiritual director that he had made slanderous statements about someone else in his town. And he asked him what he should do about it. The spiritual director said, put a feather on the doorstep of every house in town. So the man did that, came back and asked if there was anything else he should do. And the spiritual director said, yeah, go back and pick up all those feathers. He said, well, I can't do that. By now, they will have blown all over town. And the spiritual director said, exactly. So have your slanderous words become impossible to retrieve. Now, I know when I'm speaking of slander that many of you have been victimized by that. People have spread lies about you and you couldn't set the record straight even if you wanted to because lies spread faster than the truth can keep up. May God give you the grace to wait on Him, to bless and not curse, to leave room for Him to defend and vindicate you which he promises he will do in his time. Next, James says to stop using your tongue to brag about all the big plans you have. Chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to uh, this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. 
Anytime we announce to others what we intend to do, as if we are the masters of our own fate, we are too big for our britches. God is in control. And all our plans are subject to His sovereignty. And our words should reflect that truth. One passage of Scripture that I thought of uh, on this subject is Acts 12, which tells the story of the sudden downfall of Herod Agrippa, the king of Judea. Uh, After he got all dressed up in his royal robes and gave an inspiring public address, some in the audience shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a man. And the text says that because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. And it's not just the Bible that records that event. A historian by the name of Josephus wrote that Herod's garment was made wholly of silver, of a truly wonderful texture, and being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays, shone out in a wonderful manner and was so resplendent as to spread awe over those that looked intently upon him. And when his flatterers shouted that he was a god, the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. A moment later, Josephus wrote, his pain became violent and when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life being in the 54th year of his age. So in his case, it was what he didn't say that did him in, but the heart attitude was the same. He thought too highly of himself and too little of God. And like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, he was gone. Every breath we breathe is a gift from God, and our future is in his hands, not ours. Our words should reflect a humble acknowledgement of that reality. And then there's one more admonition that James gives us regarding our speech, and it is to make oaths unnecessary. To make oaths unnecessary. Chapter 5, verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven, or by earth, or by anything else, all you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Where have we heard that before? In the Sermon on the Mount. Clearly, James is repeating what he heard Jesus say, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. And I don't think Jesus would object if we were to add, don't swear to God and hope to die, stick a needle in your eye. And don't swear on your mother's grave, or say scout's honor. All you need to say is simply yes or no, anything beyond this, comes from the evil one. Why? Because if you have to pledge truthfulness with an oath, if you have to invoke God's name or put your hand on a Bible or place yourself under a curse for lying, what does that say about your everyday speech? It's like saying, I'm not always this honest, but this time I swear to tell the the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. 
As you can imagine, there's been some debate among Christians about whether passages like these forbid Christians from giving sworn testimony or from taking an oath of office. And I think it's a conversation worth having. But what we can all agree on is that as followers of Jesus, we should have such an unimpeachable reputation for honesty that no one needs anything more than a simple yes or no from us to know that they can trust us. If anyone's word should be their bond, ours should. So now we've got some specifics on what it means to keep a tight rein on our tongue. It means to listen more and speak less and to be very careful about what we teach others. And it means to use positive words, not just in what we say about God, but also in what we say about others. It means to use words that acknowledge that God is in charge and we are not. And to be so predictably honest that swearing oaths is a waste of words. What great advice. But how doomed we are to failure, left to ourselves. Because this little organ is evil and uncontrollable, humanly speaking. James told us that. But... What he does not say anywhere in this book is that the tongue is impervious to the power of God. Instead, he hints at the truth that if we are transformed at a deeper level, at the level of the heart, even something as wicked as our tongue can be redeemed. Look again at chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Now, remember the context. He's talking about how inconsistent it is for us to use the same mouth to praise God and then slander people. His point is that if the wellspring is pure, what gushes out will also be pure. If it's a freshwater well, salt water's not going to come out. And conversely, end of verse 12, neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. If the heart is polluted, our words will reflect that. Because as Jesus said, it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. This is actually good news because while a tongue transplant is impossible, a heart transplant is not. That's true medically but also spiritually. In the ancient book of Ezekiel, God spoke of the day in which we now live when he said to his chosen people, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And there's a mix of metaphors in those verses. That so-called heart transplant that we so desperately need is accomplished when the Spirit of God moves in. Lately, I've been watching a show uh, on one of my streaming channels called Help, I Wrecked My House. Have you seen this? In each episode, a designer by the name of Jasmine Roth comes into someone's home after... Their do-it-yourself projects have made things worse rather than better. 
And she and her team completely transformed the place, doing for that homeowner what they could not do for themselves. Well, that's what God does for us. When we throw up our hands and we confess our own inability to obey him and we accept the forgiveness and the fresh start that he offers us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he puts his spirit in our hearts, 2 Corinthians 1 says. Now, as we know, when the spirit moves in, the flesh doesn't move out. It still tries to exert its will. But Galatians 5 says, walk by the Spirit, that is, let Him have His way with you. Do what He is leading you to do, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So let's just apply that to our tongue. If the Spirit is given control, if He is at the reins, if He is steering the rudder, our tongue, rebellious as it is, will be kept in check because the fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. So you see, we actually can do what James tells us to do with our tongue. Yes, it's the hardest thing we will ever do in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. But the Spirit in us is up to the challenge. I have a almost every daily, I want to say daily, but... Sometimes I miss it, but I mean most days of of every week I pray um, a certain set of prayers. I start with the Lord's Prayer, but I always end um, by offering my body to God as a living sacrifice and by offering the parts of my body to Him as instruments of righteousness. That comes from Romans 12 and Romans 6. And the two parts of my body that I always offer to Him back to back are my heart and my mouth. Very often, um, I pray Psalm 19.14, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And often I follow that up with Psalm 141.3, Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I prayed those two verses this morning before church. Because I've learned the hard way that if I want to control my tongue, I have to start with my heart. You can do that. As a, as a daily, maybe even a moment-by-moment moment, um, discipline to consciously depend on the Spirit of God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I mean, pray about that in regard to your words. And if you do that, you will find that your tongue can indeed be tamed and even transformed into an instrument of righteousness. Let's pray together. And as we're all responding to whatever God's Spirit has said to us, I want to give you an opportunity, if you've never done this before, to just invite that Spirit of God to come into your life for the first time. Maybe there's never been a time when you've acknowledged that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and told him that you believe that he, he did that and that he rose from the dead. Just do that right now. If you just tell him, I, I, I do believe that you died for me. I want you to come in. Then, then his own spirit will come in. And he'll begin that change process. And Lord, for all of us who have made that decision before and who do have your spirit living in us, today, uh, we offer our body as a living sacrifice to you. 
We offer every part of our body to you as instruments of righteousness and specifically our tongue. We pray that today and in the days to come, every day this week, that you will take control because we can't control it ourselves. We know that. But thank you for all the ways in which you are going to use both our silence and our words this week to, um, to edify others, to be a blessing to them, and to bring you more glory. We trust you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.